Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Health Conscience. Christian, I'm really excited about today's guest. Um, I think it's going to be one of our, our better episodes. I'm excited as well. I mean, our guest today is someone that has had a huge impact across across health systems and academic health and um, rural health and urban health and uh, veterans health. And so we just have so much to, to talk about with her. And I'm really excited. I'm also excited because she's a Michigander and I'm a big Michigan fan. And uh -huh. Well, we won't hold that against either of you, but uh, <laughs> perfect. Well, our guest today is Nancy Schlichting and she is the retired chief executive officer of Henry Ford Health System in Detroit, Michigan. Schlichting joined Henry Ford in 1998 as its senior vice president and chief administration officer. She served as the executive vice president and chief operating officer, and then eventually president and CEO. It was named that in 2003. She retired in 2017, which spans a career of 35 years in senior health administration. She also serves on several national and community boards, including Walgreens Boots Alliance, Hill Rom Holdings, Encompass Health, Duke University, Duke University Health System, and even the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. She's also a fellow of the American College of Healthcare Executives and a member of the International Women's Forum. In 2016, she was honored as one of the 100 most influential people in healthcare by Modern Healthcare Magazine for the eighth time. And in 2017, she was not named one of the top 25 women in healthcare by the same magazine for the fifth time. In 2015, she was also appointed by President Barack Obama to chair the Commission on Care, which was tasked with examining veterans' access to the Department of Veterans Affairs Healthcare to examine how to strategically best organize the Veterans Health Administration, locate health resources, and deliver healthcare to veterans during the next 20 years. Christian, that's a long bio, which says a lot about how great Nancy is, so I'm really excited to hear from her. All righty. Well, we are here with Nancy. How are you today? I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm doing very well. Well, thanks for taking your time to join us. We know that you uh, could be doing a lot of other things. The weather's outside. It's been beautiful lately, so we appreciate you taking the, uh, the brief time. It's my pleasure. Awesome. Well, I wanted to start off um, by asking you a little bit more about your background. Um, we kind of went over it in the introduction to this podcast, but um, I think it'd be really great to hear from you why you decided to go into health administration. Um, I know a lot of our listeners are MHA students, MBA students, et cetera, thinking about their next career steps. So hearing from you directly, what drove you into the field of health administration, I think would be really, really interesting to a lot of listeners. Great. Thanks so much. I, um, I grew up in Akron, Ohio, and uh, we had a lot of loss in our family. Uh, my dad lost his brother and his sister on the same day when I was 11 years old. My mom got really sick when I was in fifth grade and was in the hospital for a month. And, you know, I, I realized that hospitals were really terrible places from my perspective. And, you know, we weren't allowed to visit my mom for the entire time she was in the hospital. And they seemed, you know, the people there seemed kind of nasty. So, you know, I just wanted to make a difference in healthcare. And initially I thought I would be a physician and I was a chemistry major at Duke uh, as an undergrad. Uh, and I did well academically, but I realized I, I couldn't handle the sight of blood. So that was a bit of a barrier to me becoming a physician. 
Um, so I actually changed my major and, and majored in public policy studies and focused on health policy. And the minute I took my first class in health policy, I realized I just couldn't wait to do the reading. And the people that I met were so amazing. And I was so excited about this opportunity. And then I started looking for careers that would allow me to kind of blend my interest in science with my interest in policy. And health administration uh, was taught at Duke. They had a graduate program. So I began to talk with some of the faculty and people who were in the field at the Duke Hospital. And I realized this was the perfect blend for me uh, and would allow me to have an impact in healthcare beyond what I originally had thought about. So that's how I got here. And I, you know, I was fortunate to be at Duke. And then I was really fortunate when I went to the Sloan program because it allowed me to have a focus on the business courses as well as uh, the health healthcare administrative uh, aspects. Yeah, I think uh, I, I really appreciate you sharing that story. I think a lot of people have, have similar um, thought processes when they enter um, the field. Um, your career has been, I think, marked as your time at Henry Ford Health System. Um, and I think one of the most interesting things that I learned from you um, was when you got there, how quick you were able to turn around um, what was really a huge financial loss into making Henry Ford Health System profitable in just about two or three years. Um, how, going into that, did you regain kind of control of that financial margin and turn that health system around um, in such a quick fashion? Well, you know, it didn't feel quick at the time. Um, I, I joined the organization in late 1998. And we were, or at that time when I joined, we were losing money. Um, but frankly, I didn't have the administrative authority in my first year or two to really begin to make, you know, the changes that were needed. And so we had some false starts in those first couple of years. Um, but finally, my, my boss, uh, Gail Warden, and I realized, you know, we had to make some fundamental changes in the cost structure of the organization. Our revenues were not matching our expenses. And we were, even though we would reduce expense, you know, somewhat, we weren't doing it as deeply as we needed to, to get back on track. So we had to make the very painful decision to reduce 10% of our physicians, 15% of our downtown hospital staff, and 15% of corporate. It was 1,500 people that were reduced. It was awful. And, you know, it was something that, frankly, I think could have been avoided if we had been more proactive years before. But we had to make those decisions. And I did it with a very collaborative approach. I was running Henry Ford Hospital at the time, and I was chief operating officer of the health system. So I had the ability to really influence the decisions that we were making. But I made it incredibly inclusive. We had doctors in all of the key leadership roles who helped me and our leadership team make the decisions. And I also was very communicative with the team and with the entire organization that if we made mistakes, which we would make, because when you make that many reductions, you're gonna have some things that don't go right. Any mistake we made, I wanted to hear about it and we would change it and we did. So I think that gave people you know, a sense of how the decisions were being made. We communicated it fully. And that allowed us, to, I think, to have the support that's needed to actually make it work. Because sometimes an organization will kind of be like, you know, it's like an antibody. It, you know, it, it either is with you or it fights you. And in this case, because of the way we handled it, 
how we did it. Uh, we were able to succeed and then begin to focus on our growth again. You know, how we could grow, how we could actually become an organization that was thriving, not just surviving. Yeah, I think that's great. And I know one thing you touched on is how difficult it could be, I imagine, to have to make those decisions for 1,500 people. Um, you know, that's something that I don't think any amount of school can prepare you for. What, what was helpful to you when you had to make those hard decisions um, in that time and process? Because I imagine it's, it's really hard and a lot of weight to put on your shoulders to make those decisions that impact so many livelihoods. Well, there were, there were a number of things. One is I didn't think we had a choice. Um, you know, and frankly, if we had kept the organization losing money, that actually makes it worse because, you know, it, it, you're deteriorating your entire reputation, how you can provide service in the community. So in many ways, you're actually just delaying the inevitable. The other thing is it was so important to me how we treated people. And the interesting thing about that process was even though we laid all those people off, probably at least half of them came back when we were starting to grow again. So they remembered how we treated them. They didn't hold it against us. In fact, I got notes from people saying, I know how hard this is for you. And they were the ones affected. So, you know, it's, it really is about the, the care, uh, the communication, the support, the compassion that a leader shows, even in the toughest of times. And what was fascinating to me was when we did all this, our employee engagement scores actually went up. Our patient satisfaction scores went up. And the reason was that people saw hope. They knew we were doing the tough things and they felt like, you know, we had a future. And I kept defining that future. I kept describing that future. And I kept engaging them to help us create that future. And that was really important. Yeah, it sounds like a, uh, it ended up working out um, relatively well for, for those involved um, and, and good lessons there all around. I think I want to transition a little bit to kind of the future of healthcare. Um, and we are seeing a continued reliance and importance um, put behind value-based care. Um, through your conversations in the industry, do you feel like that transition to value-based care is being met with enthusiasm, tolerance, resistance? Um, and do you think it's a, a necessary step for the future of healthcare in the United States? You know, I think it's being met with all of the above. Um, I think it depends on where you are, you know, the type of organization you're in. At Henry Ford, we always believed in value-based care. We had an insurance company as well as a salaried medical group. You know, so we didn't have people just driving volume. That was never our motivation. It was always about delivering the highest quality and the lowest cost that we could. But I think that there are many, many physicians and many organizations that have done extremely well in the fee-for-service type environment where volume, it was, you know, the, the strategy, you know, you just build volume. And frankly, I think that's stopping. I mean, I think we're, we're getting to a point where there is no other solution other than value-based care. If you really think about it, why should we be just rewarding more as opposed to the right care at the right time and, and really looking at the outcomes that we can achieve? And frankly, I think as you begin to understand more about the injustice of our health system, which we are looking much more closely at now, uh, the racial disparities in, in healthcare outcomes, Social determinants of health require you to look at value because many of the things that you would improve 
to change those social determinants of health are not driving volume into hospitals or into doctor's offices. It's about housing. It's about education. It's about all of the elements uh, of safety for people, food. You know, what are the things we can do to improve people's health other than just providing more care? So I think, I, and if you think about the fact that as a country, you know, we're actually getting sicker, not better. Uh, so there's a real need to change the strategy. And I think for the government, as well as for local communities, everybody sees that the answers we've tried haven't worked that well. So I think, you know, value makes a lot of sense. It may not be the thing that, you know, really motivates people. You know, healthcare always comes up with these names of things that aren't particularly inspiring. But to deliver, you know, the best care to people, the care they need, and look at all of those social determinants that really influence health. Because, you know, hospital care and medical care is a very small fraction, actually, of what influences our health. And we have to focus on those other elements. Yeah. I agree 100%. And before I came to Sloan and to do an MHA, I was a history teacher. So I didn't know all that much about healthcare. And I was shocked about the fact that we pay p people in healthcare by volume and not by results. And I, you really don't do that in any other industry. Um, and so it was shocking to me to see that. So I agree with you on that front. Um, you touched in your introduction a little bit about when you were younger seeing hospitals and um, they're not particularly great places. What do you feel like the role of hospitality is in healthcare and in hospitals? Um, and how much do hospitals need to focus on that when they're thinking about ways to improve um, the care that we were talking about? Well, you know, if you think about it, if you have someone at home who's sick, you know, what do you do? You focus on things about hospitality, how to make them more comfortable, you know, what food you can bring them, you know, really service. And hospitals, frankly, haven't done nearly enough to, to focus on those elements. You know, it's more, we had more of a militaristic approach to things. You know, it was about regimentation. You know, it was about, you know, just responsiveness. Um, that's not enough. People need care. They need comfort. They need good food. They need um, some of the unique, you know, sort of customized aspects of, of care. You know, getting to know a patient reveals a lot about what they might need and how to make their stay more, more comfortable. Uh, understanding their family dynamics might help them. You know, all those things are critical. And right now, you know, one of the, the toughest things about the pandemic is the fact that we've had, you know, limited visitation for patients. That's what I felt as a child when I couldn't visit my mom. It was awful. And, you know, my dad actually died of COVID in April at 97. And you know, I couldn't see him for the last six weeks. I finally saw him the last five days, fortunately, but, you know, it was awful for him. So, you know, thinking about hospitality, how we treat people, how we are attentive to their needs is absolutely vital in healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, and along those same lines, in 2015, you were um, appointed by President Obama to the Commission on Care, which was examining veterans of um, the Veterans Affairs Administration and looking at veterans access to health care. Uh, what inspired you to be a part of that? And ultimately, when you the commission uh, had its findings, what did you find some of the impediments to access for veterans were um, in health care? Well, it's pretty inspiring when the White House calls you. <laughs> it's it, you don't say no. 
Um, and in fact, when I spoke with uh, one of the deputy secretaries of the VA uh, initially, and you know, we talked about my background in healthcare, the next day he called and he said, Nancy, will you be chair? And I said, oh my goodness, you know, that's a lot more, but I would be honored to do that. And I was, and it was not an easy job because it was a very political commission, half Republican, half Democrat. I interviewed all of the commissioners before we started. And it was very clear that some of them had already made up their minds about what needed to be done before they heard anything or read anything. Um, so it was, it was not an easy task, but I, I absolutely learned so much and was, was honored to do it. But in terms of you know, the, the challenges within the VA, it is, it is the largest health system in the country. And it takes care of you know, the most complex issues. You, know, you have people coming back from war with uh, multiple um, tours of duty that have unbelievable uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome. Um, they have you know, issues around access, which really prompted the commission's work. Um, and a lot of that is because, you know, veterans move and they retire. And so some parts of the country are just getting slammed with volume and demand. And, and it's very hard, frankly, in a governmental system to sometimes attract enough people to work in, in that organization. So they had shortages of staff. They had a lot of pressure on them uh, all the time. I mean, everything that happens in the VA makes a headline. So it's a very challenging system to work in. They don't pay their administrators like we do in the private sector. Uh, fortunately, they pay their doctors and nurses in a comparable way. But there are so many complexities of being in the government uh, that it makes it very challenging. On the flip side, they do amazing work. Some of their, their rehab work, uh, their behavioral health is better than in the private sector. So it was really great to see some of the pluses and the minuses, but also to, you know, to focus on the pluses and to give people credit for the great work that they're doing every day. Very, very interesting. I didn't know that about the behavioral health in the VA opposed to the private sector. Um, thanks for sharing that. I'll, I'll admit, Nancy, we had trouble planning this first part of the, the, the episode, the industry-specific piece, because we usually like to dial in on one specific part of the industry that someone has experience in, but you've reached and touched so many different parts of the healthcare ecosystem that it was kind of more of a shotgun approach. So thanks for fielding these variety of questions. Um, we, we kind of want to pivot this next part of the episode into um, leadership development. And a good segue question, I think, for this is asking about building culture. So when you were um, helping lead Henry, Henry Ford Health System, you were leading an organization with tens of thousands of employees with several campuses, urban and rural, and how do you distill culture among such in, a, in an organization that's so large and different in terms of like scope of the campuses themselves? Well, culture, you know, in my view, is something that you try to influence constantly. Um, it is about having a really well-defined mission, vision, and set of values that really define your, your decision making, uh, how you treat people. And, and, and how people grow to have an expectation around consistency in an organization. And culture is also driven by the nature of the people that you have in your organization. I mean, when I came to Henry Ford, I remember asking Gail Warden, I said, you know, what's the culture like at Henry Ford? He said, we're really hard on ourselves, but when, some, when we are down and one person is down, everyone rallies around. It was interesting. 
then I came and people told me the culture was a thousand points of veto. And I thought, wow, that's great. How do you get anything done with that? You know, if one person raises a, an issue, nothing gets done. That's not good. But, you know, what we did early on in my time there was really focus on a new vision. And the vision was, at that time, it's changed since, but at that time, it was that we wanted to provide the same quality of care and comfort that we want for ourselves and our family. And we felt that was really personal. It allowed everyone to kind of rally around because we all know what that means. And that's what began to change the culture. And then, you know, my focus was on believing and possibilities and optimism. And so we began to shift our culture from a thousand points of veto to we're Henry Ford, we can. And people, that just resonated with people because they wanted to win. They wanted to feel like we could do anything. And we did. I mean, we actually won the Baldridge Award, which, you know, is crazy. And we did it as a system. And nobody had ever done that in as large an organization as we were. But, you know, there was pride. There was a sense of belief. And a lot of cultures built by every interaction you make as a leader. Because you have a spotlight on you every day. The entire leadership team does, but particularly the CEO. So it's so important that every interaction you have has meaning and conveys you know, the, the passion and the, and the, the nature of who you are. Yeah. That's an intimidating thought as well as aspiring healthcare leaders is if I, the spotlight will always be on me. If, 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 you know, I'm, I'm a leader in, in, in one of these organizations as well, and you always have to be on your game and to use one of your phrases, displaying unconventional leadership. Um, we, uh, we actually pulled a quote from, from your book and that we would love you to kind of reflect on and expand on a little bit. Um, it reads, unconventional leadership is far more fun and versatile than taking the traditional route, but it requires courage and a willingness to commit to ongoing change. Um, it will feel and look different in every case. Would you mind defining for us what unconventional leadership means to you? You know, I think it's thinking differently um, more than anything. I mean, you know, the, the book actually describes my leadership journey, and I'm a bit unconventional, you know, as a gay woman and you know, having gone through periods of time in my life with challenge around that. Um, and, and you had to be strong to get through those periods as well. But I will tell you that overall, you know, to think differently than everyone else is a great strength. And I was taught that by my parents. You know, my mom never wanted us to be like everyone else. And that was a great thing because she was a teacher as well as, as Peyton. And you know, it was so cool because she, she understood peer pressure. She did not want us to be influenced by our peers. She wanted us to have the courage and the strength to think for ourselves. And when you are different than the rest of the group, it allows you to be a leader. You know, you don't lead if you're just like everybody else. So, you know, if you want to be a leadership organization, you have to be comfortable thinking differently and not following the pack. And I will tell you, in healthcare, there's so much Me Tooism, it's just sickening. And I always hated that about healthcare because I watched, you know, these trends would come in and everybody kind of went off the cliff together when they didn't work. And I thought, you know, we got to think better than that. We got to think smarter. So that to me was unconventional leadership. And, and frankly, the things we did at Henry Ford, the reason we thought differently was, in fact, the reason we succeeded. 
Yeah, I liked I like what you said there that thinking differently is an opportunity to be a leader. I think it's also important to note as well that some people, especially emerging leaders, may may view that as a barrier, right? I mean, you may see it as a glass ceiling if you look or think or behave differently from what a traditional quote unquote maybe historical healthcare leader has looked like. Would you mind kind of speaking to those people in, in terms of breaking glass ceilings? You know, I think it's the reverse. I think if you just, you know, stay steady. And, you know, are traditional, I don't think you break the glass ceilings. I know in my case, I never would have if I hadn't stood out. I had to be very different than my peers. In fact, my peers, who were all men, used to say to me, Nancy, you make us look bad. You know, and, and I had one guy tell me once, you're just too competent. You know, great. That's a great thing. But I mean, honestly, that's how it felt. I had to be different. And I think. I, you know, the young people today think differently. I love that about all of you. And I think it's what we need. It's not like all the past traditional solutions have worked. If you think healthcare is great, I mean, you know, it is not that great. It can be so much better. And I think that's the promise that you all are going to help us achieve. Excellent. Thank you so much for that, Nancy. I can tell that's something that the, the, the passion is emanating through the Zoom call. I can definitely, I can definitely feel it there. Um, Nancy, we always tie up our episodes with one question. We like we we pull in guests from a variety of different industries, as we mentioned. Well, a, a variety of different sectors within healthcare. Um, but we always like to tie up the question the, these episodes with one question, and that question is: What tools do you recommend aspiring healthcare leaders add to their toolkits? Well, you know, there, today there are so many different tools that I think can be helpful. But you know, the truth is, you have to have some expertise and understanding of a lot of things in healthcare to be successful. You know, most importantly, you have to have an ability to focus on the people. You know, especially right now in healthcare, you look at the pandemic and the impact it's having on our healthcare teams around the country and, you know, how tough it is. So, you know, taking care of the people that take care of people as a healthcare leader is absolutely essential. And I think so often when we're young in our careers, we think of all the technical aspects that are important. You know, I've got to understand accounting and I have to know about strategy and I have to know about, you know, finance and, and marketing and all these things and clinical quality, all of which are very important. You have to understand them all. But if you don't have this connection and ability to, to really inspire your teams, I don't think you have a chance. I have watched way too many executives fail and it's typically because they don't understand and don't take the time to really connect with their teams and especially doctors and nurses. I mean, they're, they're at the front line. We don't do what they do every day. And I think it's so important to really understand where they're coming from and to spend time with them uh, and listen. Yeah, I think that's a great point and something that can oftentimes become overlooked. Um, well, Nancy, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the podcast. It was great to hear from you. We really appreciate you taking time. Oh, it was my pleasure, Peyton and Christian. Thank you for asking me. And okay. I wish you all much success and uh, hang in there with uh, this new way of learning. We, yes. we appreciate all of you. <laughs> we will try. Zoom fatigue has become a real problem. But for those of you listening, if you'd like to know more about Nancy, you, you can find her website linked 
below, or you can check out her book, Unconventional Leadership. But in the meantime, thanks so much for tuning in.